0: You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Now, when you go out this morning, you're going to be able to pick up this 2022 budget proposal. That's part of what we're doing, uh, is increasing our ministry here uh, in, Valley De- in in Hoover, in Birmingham. The other thing is that we're asking you to fill out this card. Now, I've been over it several times. Uh, not all of you have been here. You see it's in two parts. The bottom part is your financial uh, commitment. You keep that. You do not turn that in to me. You've never heard that. I know some of y'all are still stunned. You can't figure this out. You've never been part of a Baptist church where that's happened before. Uh, but that's what we're doing this time. You feel that. That's between you and God. That's you and the Lord. It's not you and the preacher or you and the church. This is between you and the Lord. You, I, and you're going to hear. I'm going to end up preaching out of this passage and uh, wrap this series up, but this is between you and what the Lord stirs your heart to do. This part, the top part, is what on the 7th you're going to turn in, hopefully with a check of first fruits to say, we're, we're a part of this, we want to do this. If we can raise that million dollars by, in Janu- by January, we can pay off that fixed loan, which will net us $200,000 saved in principal, which we can give to Nathan Amen. to buy that piece of property. Now, I hope more than three of us are excited about that. But uh, that's, what we're, that's what we're looking to do. Uh, most of this money is not going to be spent on us. Uh, we're not building a building. We're not buying property. Um, we're, we're not getting the Pastor 2022 uh, Chevrolet Corvette. Uh, you know, unless y'all decide to do that. But have y'all seen those things? Oh, my star. I would be in jail the first week I had that thing. Anyway, we're not doing anything like that. All of this is about what this church is going to invest back in the kingdom of God. So now, I want you to look at a picture. Look at this. Halloween is next Sunday. I'm just preparing you. I want you to look at that because that was dug up in Leicester, England in 2012 a bunch of construction workers were scraping off a parking lot and they uncovered this grave and they suspected almost immediately that it was the grave of a man that had been lost for over 500 years. Uh, they knew they were near where the um priory used to be And they suspected that this was where this man had been buried. And when they uncovered this grave, they saw how he was killed. Do you see right there in his head? Battle axe. This is Richard III. He is the last king of England to be killed in battle. He was killed at the Battle of Bosworth Field on August the 22nd, 1485. 1485. If you look very carefully, you can see his spine. And do you see how twisted his spine is? Richard III had scoliosis. So when they uncovered this, they know from history and from what was written in history that Richard had a twisted spine and they suspected that's who this was. Nobody knew where the Greyfriars had buried him. Uh, They buried him because he was killed by a guy named Henry who when Richard fell on the field of battle, they took the crown off of Richard and they put it on a guy named Henry who became Henry Seventh, who would have a son who would be Henry Eighth, the most famous king of Israel. This, the last king of, not of Israel, of England. This, the last king of England to be killed in battle. But they were not sure. So they wanted to do a DNA test, but that would require finding descendants of Richard III. They would have to do it through mitochondrial DNA, so they took some DNA uh, from him and from his sister, Anne of York. This ended, by the way, the Battles of the, uh, of the Roses, the Wars of the Roses, which were civil wars between the Plantagenets and the Tudors. Anyway, that's too much history. Um, They took some of his DNA and through his sister, Anne of York, they discovered two people in England living that were his direct descendants. Now you say, well, what about that? We're all used to being swabbed these days, right? What if we swabbed you when you came in the door of Valleydale? And there was a spiritual DNA test. And we could definitely link your spiritual DNA back to Jesus Christ. You say, but there's no way to do that. There's no test like that. Well, I'm glad you think that. Take your copy of God's word and I want you to look at something. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in just a moment. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5 where Paul comes to the Corinthians and he says this, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Pyrazo is the word for test. Pyrazo in the Greek. Now, what does it sound like? Pyrazo, pyrotechnic pyromaniac, pyros is fire. Test yourselves. That was the way they described test. You were tested by fire. Test yourselves to see. Now, this is Paul, the apostle, telling the church at Corinth, you can literally test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, documazo is another word it's the process that described an assayer who would take a crucible and put metal in it and would heat that crucible up and the metal would liquefy and he would discover what was the purity content of this metal was it pure gold was it pure silver or how much uh, debris was in that? How impure was that? So Paul comes and he says, there, there, there's a way to test yourself. In fact, it's not just only Paul, but if you go over to James chapter 1, uh, you get this same concept. James chapter 1, he comes to that famous statement where he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various parasmos. Same word that Paul used, fire. When you're put in the fire, when you're tested, some of you are going through a testing right now, and you wonder, why does God do this? Well, listen to James, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, the word perfect and complete means maturity, We are allowed to go through periods of fiery testing. Remember what we talked about in 1 Peter when we went through 1 Peter? We go through these fiery trials for a purpose, and the purpose is to teach us endurance, to teach us to trust in God so that we come through this, and when we come through it, we have grown up a little bit in our faith. Struggles are there. In fact, the word parosmos in James chapter 1 really speaks of internal temptation and external trials. It's what you may go through in this life as you go through struggles and difficulty and hardship, and yet there are times when we walk through temptation and uh, we don't yield, thank the Lord, and when we don't yield, do you know what it does? Is it, 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 it fortifies us spiritually. It builds us spiritually. We get a little victory over sin, and uh, that victory over sin uh, enables us to have yet more victory over sin. So there is a way to test ourselves, and that's exactly what Paul is talking about. That's why he says this in chapter 13, because he's really talking about it back in chapter 9. Look back in, first, uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 9. Now for four weeks, today being the fourth week, you've had three different preachers talk to you out of one of the longest passages in the New Testament on grace and generosity, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Dan Hall uh, and uh, Barry Chesney and now myself. We have looked at this now. This is the fourth week. And I'm going to wrap up what Paul is saying here. And just to get to the bottom line, Paul is saying this, that the gracious generosity of God to us will be reflected in our gracious generosity through us. That is, when you experience the gracious generosity of God in Jesus Christ in your life, you will express it in some kind of way. That generous graciousness of God in Christ will be expressed through your life. Uh, we're we're going to look at that because Paul's going to show you three ways that this is expressed by God to us. So look at how the gracious generosity of God to us will eventually find expression through us. So let's go straight to the text, verse six. And I'm moving kind of fast. This is what happens when I don't preach for two. I've got more to preach to you today than I can possibly preach. So. You might as well just sit back. No, listen, here we go. Verse 6, chapter 9, 2 Corinthians. He comes and he's going to give you the principle. Now, this is the principle that governs everything from verse 6 down to verse 15. For the rest of this thought uh, that Paul has about the gracious generosity of God, the grace of God, this is the principle. Now, listen to the principle here. Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, you are familiar with that. It's the law of sowing and reaping. Uh, It's been very much abused in American evangelicalism uh, by health, wealth, and prosperity preachers, uh, but that can't keep me from preaching on it, and I hope to preach on it in a biblical way. So I want you to hear what he's saying. He's saying. He's saying two things in this. There are two parts to this one principle. Number one, what you sow, you reap in like kind. Whatever it is that you sow, you're also going to reap. Now, that makes sense. If you sow wheat, you should never expect to uh, reap oranges. That's just not going to happen. If you sow corn, you're not going to reap butter beans. If you sow string beans, you're not going to reap cabbage. Doesn't that make sense? That's that's part of this. That's the first part of this one principle right here. Whatever you sow, that is what you're going to reap. Now, not just in money. Now, hang on because I'm going to give you a very secular illustration about this in just a second. The second thing is this, is how much you sow is how much you will reap. In other words, you take a handful of wheat and you throw it out and you're going to reap what a handful of wheat will grow. If you sow a 50-pound bag of wheat, you will reap what a 50-pound bag of wheat will grow. But you never expect to reap from a handful of wheat what you would reap from a 50-pound bag. So do you see the principle that is here? Now, let me give you a secular illustration. When I was writing this uh, this past week, this popped in my mind, so I'm just going to use it. And it deals, uh, it deals with children. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read anything about the Kennedy family, but Joseph Kennedy Sr., who was extremely wealthy, made a lot of money in investments, uh, at one time claimed to be the youngest uh, uh, head of a bank in, in America, Uh, he was always dabbling behind the scenes in politics. He eventually became the ambassador to St. James Court, which is he was ambassador to England. Uh, That was his political office. But he loved politics, and he loved working behind the scenes in politics. So now that in mind, one day Joseph Kennedy Sr. was out playing golf with a couple of his cronies, and uh, one of the guys there said, you know, Joe, just tell us exactly what is it that you do? Uh, what is your work? And Joe Kennedy Sr. said this, my boys are my work. He had four boys, Joe Jr., John Fitzgerald, Robert, and Teddy Kennedy. Uh, now, in that, he was saying, I am sewing into these boys. I am putting into these boys what is most important to me. My boys, my sons, are my business. That's my business. And he did it. Lord have mercy, did he do it. Uh, he did it so that the second and the third generation are still involved in politics. Joe uh, Jr. was killed, tragically, in a, an airplane uh, in World War, I, uh, World War II. He was shot down. John Fitzgerald Kennedy went on to become senator from Massachusetts and then ran and became president of the United States, tragically assassinated. He made his brother, Robert Kennedy, the attorney general of the United States, and Robert Kennedy later on would run and probably would have won the presidency had he not been assassinated. Such tragedy in the family. And then the third son, Teddy, or the fourth son, Teddy, Uh, ran for Senate, would eventually run for president, would not be successful, but was long-term serving senator from the state of Massachusetts. Then their children entered into politics, and now their children's children have entered into politics. What old Joe uh, Kennedy Sr. sowed into those boys has now affected three generations. What you sow into your children will determine what those children will produce. We wonder why our children do not come to church. Why in middle school now, they're beginning to drop out of church. Certainly by high school, they're wanting to drop out of church. And when they go off to college, they just do not go to church. And I'm going to tell you what a millennial has said. They have said this, we watched our parents who were committed to church at church but it never made a difference in their lives at home. When you sow bitterness into your children, let me tell you, you will reap bitter children. When you sow nothing but complaint into your children, you will get children who will do nothing but complain. Do you see where I'm going with this? What you sow, you will reap. And the amount you sow, you will reap as well. And you say, man, wait a minute, preacher, I sold into my kid to be in church, and they're not in church. Listen, you go back and you think about it very well. I have people tell me this all the time, when what they get, and I hear from their children is this, is that their parents did nothing but complain about church all during the week, but they went to it on Sunday. Woo! Amen. That's what we've heard. Nothing but upset and complaint, disgruntlement all week. So why should we even bother? Why would we even mess with it at this point? That's the principle. That principle is going to flow through the rest of this chapter. Now, look at what he comes to after he gives you the principle in verse 7. He's going to tell you this that generosity builds a bond of affection. Now, look at verse 7. Each one must do as he has purposed. The word purpose there is literally predetermined. This is something that is predetermined in the person's heart. Pre, pre-purposed, predetermined in his heart. That is, this is not done off the cuff. This is not done something emotionally. This is not done out of guilt. This is done because I've sat down and I've thought about it and I've prayed about it and we've discussed it and this is what is purposed in my heart. You remember five Sundays ago I preached out of Exodus chapter thirty-five, and you remember in Exodus chapter thirty-five Moses looks at the people and he says, "This is what the Lord has said: Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution." And then he comes back and in verse twenty-one he says, "Whose heart stirred him?" And in verse twenty-two, "All whose hearts moved them." And in verse twenty-six, "Whose heart stirred?" And in verse twenty-nine, nine, "Whose heart moved?" Then in verse 34, he talks about God putting it in the heart. And then in chapter 36, verse 2, he comes back and he says, everyone whose heart stirred him. It was everyone. Where do you think Paul got this from? He got this, I'm convinced, out of Exodus chapter 35. He comes and he says, each one must do as he has determined, predetermined in his heart. I have gone to God, I have prayed, I have talked to the Lord, not the preacher, and uh, this is what I believe God has laid on my heart. God has stirred my heart. Now look at what he says following this. He gives you two qualifiers here. Not grudgingly, lupe is the word uh, in, in the Greek for grudgingly, lupe, not begrudgingly, Not doing it out of the word, the the word lupe literally, in Spanish it means crazy, but in Greek it means heaviness, heaviness. Just this sense of being weighted down, that it's heavy, that there is sorrow in this. Not that I have, the the church has come to a place and uh, they're asking us to give, and I want to tell you something, it's just heavy on my heart. I just don't like churches doing this. I don't like preachers preaching on this. This is just a sorrow down within me. He says, it's not that way. He says, you must do this as you've purchased in your heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. The word compulsion is the word distressed. It means to feel this distress, this anxiety. Not that I don't have anything to give But that I've been asked to give. That distresses me. I don't like that. I don't like for a preacher asking me to give something. I don't like for a church. I want him just to get up there and preach the word of God. Well, what the devil do you think I'm preaching out of? This is what I'm preaching right here. Paul says, This is the way you give. You go, you pray about it, and you come back with what God has settled and stirred in your heart, not grudgingly, not under compulsion. For God, look at this, God loves, agape is the word. It's the highest form of love. It's the kind of love that God has for us through Jesus Christ. It's the kind of love that uh, God has for us in that he gave us his only begotten son. For God loves a hilaros. Hilaros is what? What does that sound like? hilarious. The word in the Greek is hilarious giver. You know, I, I don't watch much TV, but I'll occasionally get on YouTube and I'll look at things. Now, this is the kind of stuff I look at. Something from Jonathan Withers, Winters, you know, um, something like that. I was watching yesterday when they inducted Red Skelton into the Hall of Fame, the Comedy Hall of Fame. Now, a lot of y'all don't know who Red Skelton was, and I'm sorry that you don't. His dad was a clown in a circus and died before Red Skelton was born. Now, by the way, let me tell you something about Red Skelton. He is considered to be a great American artist, by the way. Just go look up some of his paintings and see what they sell for. Um, he uh, He was a great painter. He wrote some 4,000 short stories and wrote somewhere around 1,000 pieces of music. He was a genius is what he was. But the funny thing of Red Skelton was that he laughed at himself. Uh, He was always laughing at himself. It was not that what he was telling was so funny. What you laughed at was the way it cracked him up. He would just constantly laugh. He couldn't get through anything without stopping and just laughing at himself. That is hilarity. That is what Paul is saying here is that God loves somebody who laughs within their heart at themselves when they give. Now, can you imagine on the 7th when we put uh, deacons out here with baskets and we ask you to come down just with that top part of the card where you have marked, I will pray, I will follow the measures here, the values here of Valleydale, I will pray and look to give in some kind of way. And you put that in is if we had people start to come and they broke out laughing coming down to put it in the basket. Could you imagine that? No, I can tell right now you can't even imagine it. Are you, are you awake this morning? Are, are you here? Did you, are you, did you get over yesterday okay? I haven't, but you from Alabama ought to be rejoicing in the Lord today. Um, <laughs> well, that's what he's saying right here. He's saying God loves a hilarious, a cheerful giver. Now, I'm going to read something to you from John MacArthur, because if I were to say it, you wouldn't believe it. But if I quote John MacArthur, everybody, well, well, you know, MacArthur said it, so that's Sue. I want you to listen to what he said. Now, John MacArthur um, is no name it and claim it. I can promise you that. He is no health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. But I want you to listen to what he says about this verse. MacArthur says, when you give out of your heart with no pain, not giving because you've been pressured, When you give freely and spontaneously and joyfully and cheerfully and generously, God loves you in a special way. Oh, John MacArthur said that. Let me me read that again. God loves you in a special way. No more precious promise than that could be made. When giving is voluntarily, when it is personally willed from deep within the heart, when it is done with joy and without reluctance and without compulsion, there's no pain, there's no pressure, God grants a special love to such a giver. And you say, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God loved us all the same. Well, he does. I thought Paul said in Romans, God is no respecter of Well, that's exactly right. But MacArthur tells us that God grants a special love to such a giver. Now, what does that mean? I've got three children. I think they're mine, but they are, listen, I want to tell you, they are all three totally different. And sometimes I scratch my head and wonder, did they come out the same gene pool? Um, I don't know what pool they came out of, but they, they are as different as day and night. Now, none of, none, none of them are in here right now. Now, listen, there are aspects to my daughter that never show up in my boys. Uh, if, men, if you have a daughter, you have a blessing in your life. They'll take care of you the way sons won't. Take care of you. My, listen, my sons are not impressed that I've gotten a second doctorate. It doesn't, they just look at me. They don't even say congratulate. They just look at me and say, hey, I can still take you down. <laughs> that's what they do. Come on, Dad. You want to wrestle? So I, I look at my daughter, and my daughter has aspects about her that I love about her that's unique to her. Now, does that mean I love those boys less? Absolutely not. I'd die for all three, any one of my children, in a, in a second, without thought. I love them all. There are aspects about one boy that don't show up into the other two kids. He was an absolute joy in school. The last time I asked him how, how he was, did you study, was in the ninth grade because he knocked everything out the park. He was coming home. He, was, he graduated with highest honors. The third one, you could draw a gun on him, and he'd say, hey, just shoot me. I'm not (laughs) going to study. But he's got aspects about him that I love about him that don't show up in the others. Do you see what I'm saying? God loves a cheerful giver in a way that he can't love someone who does not give because it's not there. What Paul is saying is this. When you give... And you give out of a love for God to the point to where it is a joy for you to give. God loves that in you. And you say, well, how do I get there? Let me show you a verse in Jude. And uh, let me tell you, just in working through this, I think after the first of the year, I'm going to preach through the little epistle of Jude. But listen to Jude, I think, I don't know. But look at Jude, the only chapter, there's only one chapter. And uh, listen to verse 21. Just look at verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And you say, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? Can I take myself out of the love of God? Now, I'm just preaching. I'm not even messing with notes. I'm just preaching what's on my heart to you this morning. You remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son left the father and went to the far country. He was lost. He had no idea where the son was. He couldn't do anything for the son that was over there. But did he ever get out of the love of the father? No, the father always loved him. But he was outside the blessing of the father. Father didn't know where he was. The father could not take care of him. The father couldn't do anything until the boy decided in his own heart that he would come home to the father. And as he came home to the father, what did the father do? He rushed out. He picked the boy up off of his knees. He put the coat on him. He put the shoes on him. He put a ring on his finger. He killed the fatted calf. He threw a celebration. Why? Because the boy was back into the area of the blessing of the father. Now, let me tell you something. You will never get outside the love of God. God always loves you, but you can put yourself in the far country outside the place where God can bless your life. And you can do that in a lot of ways, but when God who has blessed me gives to me and I never give back to God out of a cheerful heart, God says there are blessings That I could bestow on you, but you are in the far country in this area of your life. And I can't bless you the way I want to. Now, let me show you. This flows into the very next thing. And that is this, generosity, listen, releases the resources of God. Now, I just want you to listen to the text. Pick it up in verse 8. God is able, that's the word dunamis right there. Sounds like dynamite, not the same word, but it means power, an explosive power. God is able to cause to explode in power all grace to you. He's able, he has the ability, he has the power to make all grace abound to you so that always having a sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. He says when you come to the place where you trust God and you give to God, God always takes care of your needs, and He will give you some extra so that you can continue to give to the kingdom of God. Now, I grew up in a very modest, middle class, blue collar home. My dad had an eighth grade education. That's all he had. But he started his own business, and he was very successful, though. When he died, he died with very little left in the bank. We'd used it all to take care of them, Uh, which to me was God's, God just said to me when my dad died and he left really about $4,000 in the bank, he said, my dad and my mom, within seven months, God took them home together. And God says, listen, they exhausted their resources here. I'll just take care of them now. I could not have been happier. That has so ministered to my heart. That's the way God treats his children. That's the way God treats his children. He cares for his children that way. I can remember weeks in that store when business was poor, business was bad. And daddy never complained. He never, mama would now. That's a different story. But I'm talking about daddy. Uh, Daddy never would. He'd just say, I've got a note due this Friday. And he says, I don't know what I'm going to do. And invariably, I watched it happen at least 300 times. I know somebody would come in on a Friday afternoon and would want a house full of furniture and would give daddy cash for it. And as soon as they got out the door, my daddy would take off with that money and he would say, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the children of God begging for bread. I'm going to pay the note. Happened all the time. It's amazing to me just to sit there and watch it. If for no other reason, I believe that God takes care of his children because I saw how God took care of my dad. That's what he's saying. Listen to him. He comes and he quotes and he says he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower, who is that God? God gives seed to the sower. Bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest for your righteousness. He says just trust God. Give something to the Lord that he puts in your heart and watch God will give you bread and he will continue to give you seed to plant and then he will give you a harvest where there's always a little extra so that you can continue to give to the things of God. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. Not you will be enriched in all things so that you can go buy a hundred thousand dollar Corvette. Not so that you can be enriched in order to go and buy a third home somewhere. No, God doesn't do that for us so that we can turn around and just pour it on ourselves. Listen, he gives to us so that we can take what we have and give back a portion of that to the things of God. Listen, let me read to you something. I think it's in Deuteronomy 15. Just listen to this. Now, back in Exodus, when I preached to you out of chapter 35, Moses was speaking to one generation. That generation was dead. These are their children he's talking to now. So just imagine all of the older ones here gone, and all of their children are listening. All of you young people, listen to what Moses is telling the young generation. You shall be generous. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him talking about the poor, because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Now, Moses is telling this to the children whose parents have died, who gave to build the tabernacle. Now he's telling this young generation, he says, listen, this is what God wants you to do. You shall generously give to him and your heart will not be grieved. You don't do it grudgingly. You don't do it under distress for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open uh, your hand to your brother, to your needy and the poor in your land. You say, wait a minute, preacher, I'm not rich. Listen, I I read a statistic uh, this past week that if you have $2,100 in total net worth, if you have $2,100 in total net worth, you are richer than 50% of the world population. $2,100. If you have $61,000 in total net worth, and some of you have got that much equity in your house, $61,000. If you sold it, you'd make at least $61,000. If you've got $61,000 in net worth, you're richer than 90% of the world's population. Now, think about your 401K. Think about what you have. We can't honestly stand up and look at anybody in the face. I think about these poor Haitians that I've been watching. At least they're marching in the streets to free the missionaries. I wish somebody in our government would get active on this. They have captured. I've been down to Haiti numerous times, taken hundreds of teenagers down there, worked in uh, Carnival, in the city of Carnival down there, Um, uh, 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 helping people putting water systems into people's houses painting people's houses planting trees in people's yards Uh, I I think about that and I look at the Haitians that are out there you can't you can't look at one of these Haitians and look at them and say well man I just don't have any I ain't got a dime we can't do that we are blessed people amen well I can tell y'all don't like that point. So, okay, I'll go to the third thing. Look at this. Generosity generates a witness that brings glory to God. Now, watch it what Paul says. I was going to take you to Romans 15. By the way, if you read Romans 15, you find out Paul gets there with the money. But let me just show you this. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. He says, let me tell you what your money does. He says, your money will not only feed these saints, these starving Jews that were in Jerusalem that have been cut off from everything. They had nothing. They were dependent on somebody. They they will be fed. Their needs will be met, met. And through this, there will be this overflowing thanksgiving to God. What God gets out of this is the thanksgiving of his people. And he says, because of the proof Given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience. Now, I've just got to stop and tell you what that is, and I'll, I'll quit right here. Listen to what he says. The Jews had real struggle with the Gentiles being saved. You remember, Peter goes down to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius is this Italian centurion who is in Caesarea by the sea, and uh, Peter is called to go down there and to preach the gospel to this Gentile and a Roman citizen at that, uh, and a, a centurion on top of that, a Roman soldier. And he goes down there, and Cornelius meets him, and Peter looks at him, and he says, you guys know I'm a Jew, and as a Jew, I can't come in your house. I can't associate with you Gentiles. I'm not supposed to have anything to do. I wouldn't eat off the same place. I wouldn't drink out the same water fountain or use the same bathroom as you. I'm a Jew. You're a Gentile. But Peter says, but God got a hold of me, and God said this, I'm no respecter of persons. What I call clean, don't you call unclean. You stop calling these Gentiles unclean, and you get down there and preach the gospel to them. Peter goes in the house, preaches the gospel, Holy Spirit falls, and Peter says, hey, they got saved just like I got saved. Let's get some water and baptize them. You remember Paul and Barnabas go off on their first mission trip? Where do they go? They go to a bunch of Gentile churches, or or they go and plant a bunch of Gentile churches. And they go to this area of the Gentiles, and out there with the Gentiles, Gentiles are coming to Jesus Christ left and right. God's working miracles among them. They come back to Antioch, and they discover that the Judaizers had come in the church at Antioch, and this is what they said. Okay, we'll let the Gentiles be saved, but they got to be Jews first. They got to be circumcised. They got to keep all the ritual. They got to keep the law. They got to do this. They got to do that. They got to do the other. Paul said, let's go up there to Jerusalem. Let's go to James. Let's go to the other apostles up there. They go up there and Peter gets, uh, Paul gets in front of them. And he says, let me tell you something. This is what happened when we went to preach to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fell on them and we saw God work miracles and they were coming left and right to Jesus Christ. And James says, we're not going to stop it. We're not going to stop it. God's gonna save the Gentiles just like he saved the Jew, and he'll save the Jew just like he saves the Gentile. So the Jews had a struggle with the Gentiles getting saved to begin with, but now listen, all these Jews in Jerusalem knew about these Gentiles in Corinth. This was a bad church. Corinth. It was the worst church in the New Testament. Carth was a church involved where you had the whole congregation split up. And part of the congregation said, well, we're, we're following John Hagee. And the other, well, we're following Joel Osteen. Well, the other, well, we're following Charles Stanley. And that makes us more spiritual than all the rest of you. That's what they were doing. And then they were not only doing that, but they were suing each other, left and right. This brother suing this brother, this brother suing this brother. They were just taking each other to court and suing each other. Judge Judy, man, she was going, she would have knocked herself out in Corinth. Just with the church suing each other. Then you've got them living in incest, living and sleeping with prostitutes. It was a messed up church. Those people were not perfect. And what Paul is saying here is this, these Jews down here in Jerusalem, they've heard what you're doing up here in this church in Corinth. But when you send that offering, it is going to have this impact. They will say to themselves, that could never happen but that God has done something in the heart of a Gentile through Jesus Christ. And we give glory to God that he's saving the Gentiles. I don't know what our witness is going to be. I don't know what our witness is going to be. But I want to tell you something. I have no idea what God's going to do. But I can tell you this. It will make a statement about our witness that we trust the Lord when we not only pay our debt off, but as a church, we turn around and say, we are going to give a million dollars a year to missions. That's 20% of what that budget will be. That's pretty wild that a church does that. We're not building something for us. But now listen, as As great a witness as that is, a greater witness is when people begin to walk the aisle, giving their lives to Jesus Christ. Because money can't do anything about that. But God is stirring in the hearts of some of you. You need to come. You may need to come to be baptized. Some of you need to come and join this church. Others of you need to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. So let's give the opportunity right now. Just stand with me. All of us standing, our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Where are you in that? Because every time I've preached to you about this, I've told you, God doesn't want your money. God's not interested in your money. But what God is interested in is your heart. He wants you. And he wants you to put your faith and your trust in him. He's looking for you to stand up and say what Nicholas sang when he came down into the baptistry a couple of weeks ago. I have decided to follow Jesus. How about you? Father, in these moments, as you speak to our hearts, help us to stop resisting and to begin to trust. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Just your heads bowed now and your eyes closed. I'm going to invite you to make a decision. Maybe you need to come to this altar and pray. Maybe you need to come to me and say, I'm coming. I want to join this church. Or I want to come and trust Jesus Christ. You say, but I don't know what to do. Well, listen, come and ask me. I'll help you do that. Can't do it for you, but I can help you do it. Whatever it is God's laid on your heart, I keep saying this. I hope and pray God's calling some young people into ministry. I hope that some of you are wrestling with God's call on your life God's calling me to a ministry. I'm not exactly sure. Listen, when God called me, I had no idea what it was that God wanted me to do. But I knew that I must surrender to God's call on my life and trust that God would lead me. And he did. So I'm telling you young people that. Just trust. God will show you. God will lead you. You can count on that. But he's waiting for you to respond to say, I believe God's calling me to ministry. You come right now in this moment of invitation. Step out. Come and make that decision. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.